Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us on Eagle Eye today. Every week, we have exclusive interviews with your favorite BC student athletes, professors, alumni, and more. Make sure to follow The Heights on Instagram and Facebook to recommend guests you'd like to hear from. You can catch up on the latest headlines on The Heights Facebook and Twitter pages every Monday. Today's exciting was of a special guest, Professor Mary Holper, the Associate Dean for Experiential Learning, Director of the Immigration Clinic, and an Associate Clinical Professor at Boston College Law School. Professor Holper has written and co-authored articles for numerous law reviews and reference guides concerning immigration issues and recently spoke in an interview with GVH's Morning Edition, where she discussed the significance of sanctuary cities in light of the relocation of migrants to Martha's Vineyard from Florida. Uh, thank you for joining me, Professor Holper. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, so to get started, um, in your own words, I guess, for, for people who maybe aren't as familiar with the term, like me, I guess, um, what would you define a sanctuary city as? So I think the term has evolved. I wouldn't say that today a sanctuary city means the same thing as it did when it first started. Back in the 80s, people referred to sanctuary and sanctuary cities as much more along the idea of um, churches harboring people from deportation when the immigration agents were literally outside wanting to deport, say, a Salvadoran refugee who didn't meet the definition of asylum under our Refugee Act. And that was for very political reasons that then became a subject of a lawsuit that then all got corrected through legislation. But back in the 80s, um, we have an example of a Salvadoran who basically um, you know, had been a failed asylum seeker under the asylum law that went into um, that was enacted in 1980, but was being enforced in a very discriminatory manner. And so um, uh, like basically churches in Cambridge came forward and said, we will offer you sanctuary as in you can come and seek harbor in our doors inside of our church so that the immigration agents waiting outside will not take you away and deport you. So it was definitely much more of a form of civil disobedience. But I feel like the term has really evolved. And during the Trump administration, it came up a lot. Um, the Trump administration actually created an executive order, passed an executive order in 2017 that would have stripped sanctuary cities, quote unquote, from certain federal funds that that federal funds that were guaranteed to assist local police departments and that executive order never really defined what a sanctuary city was but the way that um the Trump administration described it was some a city that was actively obstructing law enforcement like getting in the way sort of instead of just um you know like we're not going to help ICE in being pawns in their deportation machine, it was more like the way that the Trump administration would have would have the narrative around sanctuary cities was they were trying to get in the way and obstructing ICE from doing its carrying out its functions of federal immigration enforcement. And so that um, I think during the Trump administration was very much what at least that administration saw a sanctuary city was, and then a sanctuary city became kind of a dirty word or a dirty term and not something you wanted it to be. But then the cities came back and said, no, this means something else. This means we're not pawns in the immigration system. This means we're not going to be 
force multipliers. You know, there's not enough deportation agents to actually enforce all of the immigration laws against all the people who are potentially deportable. So um, lots of um, restrictionist immigration thinkers came up with the plan of let's deputize local law enforcement agents, let's deputize local police, we'll turn them into immigration agents, we'll have them ask about people's immigration status. So the meaning of sanctuary city more during that time period, during the Trump administration in particular, when the cities professed to be sanctuary cities, what they meant was we are not going to actively do anything to help the immigrate the federal immigration agents. It's not that they were saying, um, you know, we're going to do something to thwart federal immigration law. It's just that you can't put our services to use. So we're not even going to ask people about their immigration status when um, somebody who is not a citizen reports a crime to the police. Um, we're just we're not even going to ask. We're not going to have the information, and therefore we're not going to share it with the federal government. We're not going to let them into our jails. We're not going to. Um, hold people so that ICE can come get them at the end of their sentences. So that to me is really what sanctuary has evolved into. But then it's very interesting because this whole Martha's Vineyard thing, um, you know, the the governors like Governor DeSantis, when he talks about sanctuary city, it kind of goes back to the original meaning of it, which is like Martha's Vineyard will give you a place to sleep and a place to 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 stay. And that's what it would mean by a sanctuary city. And I mentioned this in the GBH interview, but it would be highly ironic of a, if a restrictionist anti-immigrant governor like DeSantis would say, um, you know, like, we're going to send you to somewhere that's going to actively obstruct federal deportation agents from doing their job, because why in the world would we would he want to do that? Um, and so really, it seemed like his meaning of sanctuary city was back to the Go to Martha's Vineyard. They've got lots of extra places for you to sleep. They'll give they'll they'll roll out the welcome mat. Go there. Right. There's definitely a lot of uh, ambiguity around that term now. Um, I know I was confused about it myself um, upon reading on it. Um, and I know it's it's especially kind of controversial because now Massachusetts is considered a sanctuary state, um, especially because it. Um, I, I read that it grew the migrant population grew like nearly sixty thousand um people from 2007 to 2017 which is a great great amount um but it's also kind of um like a little bit questionable like a lot of people don't consider massachusetts to truly be like a sanctuary state um what are your kind of views on like that label of massachusetts having that um like requirement as a sanctuary state and is that justified or is it maybe not so much everything i've read would suggest would point in the direction of Governor Baker saying this is not a state level question. This is a city and locality level question. I'm not going to decide for the whole state of Massachusetts whether we're going to be sanctuary or not. And again, what does that mean, sanctuary? I mean, um, so it to me it 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 seems like from a state level, at least our governor is saying we're going to leave it up to the cities and localities. They're going to decide whether they're sanctuary cities or not. And then, um, you know, Somerville can decide that it's a sanctuary city, which it did, you know, like that, that type of um, that's, I think, what you see happening more in Massachusetts. Um, I, I think, again, getting back to the Martha's Vineyard issue and Governor DeSantis and what he's doing, it definitely it seems like that's a liberal state. 
they seem very welcoming of immigrants. Whether or not you want to call that a, they've, they've done some legislative pronouncement that has called themselves a sanctuary state or a sanctuary city. I really do think DeSantis is like, go to a liberal state, force them to roll out their welcome mat, and we'll just keep sending migrants up there. And then at some point, the welcome mat will wear thin. And then at that point, they're going to question whether they even want to be a sanctuary state or a sanctuary city or anything anymore. I mean, I think that's the rationale behind it. And of course, what's been super impressive is watching the Martha's Vineyard and the greater Boston legal community respond immediately to the need and actually provide all of the sanctuary, all of the legal assistance, all of the help that, um, you know, was like, obviously, it was done in such a haphazard manner. Nobody saw it coming. It would have been way better to know that this was coming and that it, there was a need and make a plan. But given that there was no plan in place, it was incredibly impressive how much everybody showed up to help. So, um, I mean, I think, you know, the Math Martha's Vineyard community and Mass in the greater Boston legal community really proved the label of sanctuary if, you know, if what you mean by sanctuary is we rolled out the welcome mat and we, you know, made sure that people had a home and a place to go and legal assistance with their cases. Um, from what I can tell, it certainly seems like that's been the impressive. And, and I'm not surprised because I know this immigration community and I know how awesome they are. Um, and I know how I've, I've had clients in similar situations who just needed a place to stay. And, you know, one, I know two of my law students in 2020 had the incredibly difficult task that they succeeded in finding a church that took in their client who was getting released from detention, who had lots of mental health issues and was and went to the home of a church member. And that was in a pandemic. So, you know, I know personally from the work that I've done, how amazing the greater Boston community is in rolling out the welcome map. Yeah, it's it's such a great story to see. I mean, especially because I mean, there's so many unknowns with the situation, and um, obviously, it's it's a very politicized move. Um, but obviously, it had a kind of a good result. Um, so, I guess would you say that maybe these kinds of kind of politicized relocation efforts should be continued if results, you know, if migrants are accepted in a in a good manner and have better opportunities even if it is kind of forced, um, is that something that should continue or maybe should be kind of facilitated better? I mean, certainly, you know, the, the refugee resettlement program is probably the best analogy. And in fact, that's ironically the documents that these fake documents that they were given from the Florida woman who, you know, posed as a like, here, I'm a good Samaritan and I can help you come get on this plane, you know, come and get on this plane and you will land somewhere where there's all these services and goods and legal assistance promised to you. And that was all fake. Um, but uh, those documents resembled the documents that refugees would get when they're resettled. And the whole refugee resettlement process is really like that. It's, you know, somebody is in a refugee camp, say in Kenya, and then gets um, gets determined to be to meet the, the UN definition of a refugee. And then the the next step is to get them resettled into a place, a country that will take them. And um, and then the whole world should 
uh, share in this burden of 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 helping the refugees and taking in people once they've met that threshold refugee requirement. And the U.S. does resettle refugees, um, and it's done through the Department of State, our Office of Refugee Resettlement, and um, and it's obviously done in a much more coordinated manner where the refugee resettlement agencies, like Catholic Charities here in Boston, for example, they show up at the airport and they have a place for the family to stay and they have everything all sorted out. Like here's English classes, here's, you know, the things that you need um, in addition to the legal assistance. So yeah, I mean, ideally it would be something like that. The challenge here is that, um, this is, you know, I know the the sort of answer um, it, that I'm suggesting is not even a great answer because that, you know, like how long would somebody have to wait outside the United States to get um, to get declared or determined to be in this status that then they could go resettle elsewhere. Um, I mean, this is this was the migrant protection protocol, the Remain in Mexico program from the Trump administration, where the Trump administration basically decided we will force you to sit in squalor on the border in Mexico in order to then, you know, not come into the United States while your claim for asylum is processing. Um, and without any regard to the safety of and, and the ability to actually get to court and the access to lawyers and all the difficulty that that created. Um, I mean, that's essentially like Trump tried to create that refugee type program, but for asylum seekers, because refugees and asylum seekers are different. You know, a refugee is somebody who's already met the definition and then they come to the United States with that legal status already in place. Whereas an asylum seeker is somebody who um, is coming, you know, came to the United States in some other status, could be an illegal status, could be, you know, could be coming in as a student and asking for an asylum coming in undocumented and asking for asylum, but then they prove through the immigration system that they meet that same definition, that they cannot go back to their home country because of a well-founded fear of persecution. Um, so anyway, so it is, it's it's definitely been a time-honored, difficult policy um, discussion that just about every administration has had when, um, there's a lot of people fleeing um, persecution in other parts of the world, and especially parts of the world where they can easily get to the United States. Yeah, um, it, it's so important to bring up all those uncertainties. I know um, it, the, just the, having the label as, as a refugee compared to an asylum seeker is very important. Um, but especially going back to the migrants um, who did go to Martha's Vineyard and, and so many others, um, what can kind of be expected in the future is are the jobs and housing that are provided right now expected to be like a long-term thing um or is it just kind of temporary like oh place you here for now but it's it's not permanent it's not it's not suitable in the long term yeah i mean i you know honestly i don't know the answer specifically because i don't know enough about the details of the housing and the how long term it is and what the promises are um i mean i know what tends to happen in a situation like this is when the good people of the community come forward and say like it like in this situation that in my client's case in our clinic client case in back in 2020 you know that 
that um, housing situation was not going to be forever. And at a certain point, they mutually agreed. The family who my client was living with and the client were like, all right, time for something else. And they helped find the client a, another housing arrangement. So it wasn't like we're just kicking you up to the street now. I mean, so regardless of whether the current housing situation is going to be the thing that carries them all the way through until they're sustained and living on their own and being able to support themselves, I don't know. But I, I can almost guarantee that none of the people who've been good enough to open up their homes are then going to just like evict them without any plan of what comes next. Um, and kind of helping them through that transition. So, um, so, so that's that. And with the legal cases, you know, they've gotten the U visa certification, and a U visa is an immigration law. Um, it's a it's a law that Congress passed that was designed to provide a visa, a per, you know, a, an ability to to be protected against deportation, but then ultimately the pathway to a green card, permanent resident status, and citizenship for people who have been victims of violent crime, who have been helpful to law enforcement in the investigation or prosecution of that crime. So at this point, they have gotten certification that they were victims of the crime um, and uh, and that crime was you know, basically like illegal kidnapping <laughs> and, um, and that they have been helpful. They've provided information about it. And so that does present a manner of them being protected against deportation. And those, so those applicate, you know, they have immigration lawyers who are helping with those applications and then those applications will go in and that the process can be timely, but at least there's, you know, that um, based on a um, precedent decision from the first circuit court of appeals means that they shouldn't be deported while that, that visa is pending. Yeah, that, that's really great to know. Um, I, especially the topic of deportate, uh, deportation, um, especially with um, like states like Texas and Florida who are getting so many, I guess the term is like illegal immigrants or illegal aliens um, who are pouring into those states um, from other, other countries. Um, is it the responsibility of say sanctuary cities or states to kind of accept um, say like illegal aliens, um, I guess using that term is, is odd, but um, to accept people who, you know, would, would not otherwise be documented um, mm -hmm. and kind of helped along in that, in that sense. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, just the terminology, a lot of people, um, I often correct my students using the word alien, because even though it's technically correct in that it is in the Immigration and Nationality Act, that's what Congress calls them. I think it's horribly pejorative. And I know in all of our legal filings, we would use the term non-citizen, which also is kind of weird because it's like defining someone by what they are not. Um, so I know a lot of people would use the term migrant, um, non-citizen, migrant, undocumented non-citizen. So I've seen all sorts of terminology used. But yeah, but the question of whose job is it or whose burden is it? Um, I mean, I really think it's everyone's burden. It's not just, um, it, it, it is Massachusetts and Texas and Florida and Montana and, you know, all of the states in, in the United States, because it, I just don't think it has to be, it shouldn't have to be one state that is, that is, you know, sort of, providing the the full-on care. But to be fair, I mean, I've had plenty of state or I've had plenty of clients come in across the southern border and their first entry point is Texas. And, you know, that may be where they get caught. 
and that may be where they have to go back to court. But if if they just get on a bus and come to Massachusetts, you know, they like go about living their lives there. They seek a change of venue, basically to have the court proceedings that are in Texas moved up to Boston. They seek a lawyer in Boston. So I've actually seen that already happening um, before. It, you know, so if you think about it, if people aren't in detention, it's they're free to move. You know, it doesn't once they're in the United States, if they have a community in New Jersey, then they go to New Jersey and that's where they find housing. And then and that's even better because they don't need to rely on, you know, strangers to house them and put them up. And the charity of strangers, they can rely on their own communities that they've already built and, you know, family who is up in New Jersey or up in Boston or wherever it is. So, um, so yeah, I just, I don't tend to think of it as necessarily a burden. I mean, another big issue here is um, prior to, you know, a, a, a while ago in the immigration law, um, if you applied for asylum, you got a work permit, but then at a certain point, um, the law changed because the idea was that um, the fear was that people were putting in fraudulent asylum applications just to get a work permit. And so then the law changed so that you had to wait for at least six months. You know, you put in your asylum application and it wasn't until six months later you could get a work permit. But then what would happen if you came to court and you said, well, I need a continuance I'm not ready to go forward. And then that clock would stop and you wouldn't get your work permit. And, you know, there's a whole mess around getting work permits. But if you think about it, their ability to be self-sustaining, if they just had a work permit from, from right when they came in, it makes it seem, I know that there's this idea from the restrictionist immigration camp that it's like, oh, no, 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 we're giving them an ID. We're giving them like permission to be here and a work permit is not permission to be here. It's basically permission to be working because you have an application pending and while that application is pending. And let me tell you, these cases can take a really, really long time. I was just meeting with some students preparing for an asylum trial that is in December. And this client came to the United States in 2012. And for through a variety of circumstances way outside of her control, the case just kept getting continued and bumped back. And I mean, one of the times she was supposed to go to court, it was our government shutdown in 2019. So she, so we had to explain to her the reason why you can't have your court date is because our government shut down. And so anyway, this is, you know, an example like that of somebody who is just like, I've been here since 2012. I have been looking for my asylum hearing since 2012. And now it's 10 years later and I'm finally having it. And, you know, knock on wood, hopefully it doesn't get, you know, put off for any other reason. Like that for during that entire time for somebody to to not be able to work. Um, that's what's absurd about the system. And that's where we should be rethinking, like giving them a work permit is not it's not giving them any permission to stay here. It's just sort of like, OK, you get to work while you're here and you can earn your own keep and you can support yourself and you don't have to rely on the strangers of Martha's Vineyard to put you up. And I'm sure that, you know, it's lovely. And I'm sure this is creating a lot of great um, uh, connections across, you know, across the border. But I don't you know, there is another way to think about this. And it doesn't have to be our system that it is right now where they don't have eligible, they don't have access to a work permit during the entire period of time that this case is pending.
Right. Th those are such important topics you bring up, um, especially with the worker permit. Um, and there, it, it could be said, I mean, there's so much kind of emphasis on the government's role in immig immigration policy, which is pretty clear um, as to why that is. But do you think that such a strong kind of control from the government in making these policies um, is problematic in any way? Or should it be changed in the future um, to kind of better allocate um, the resource or resources that are given? Like the, there is no process without the government, right? Because the government yeah. is the process. You know, they're the ones who set forth the immigration adjudicators. That's all the government. Um, and so we do need the government to do something, you know, to sort of they're, they're the ones who are the decision makers about um, who's making, you know, who who meets the definition of a refugee, who, who could actually get asylum. So it's yeah. So I think it's hard to say we could just take the government out of it now politics and whether um it you know politics belong in this because immigration is such a politicized issue where it's just like a pawn and it's and it's completely unfair because what you're talking about is a group of people who can't vote and so by virtue of their lack of citizenship they can't vote and so they just get played as a as a you know like i'm anti-immigrant you know like the way that donald trump for example you know, had this like fear, or you know, this sort of like, we should all be afraid of immigrants. I don't really think he was afraid of immigrants. I don't really think he said in his gilded tower and thought like, some person from Mexico is going to come and attack me. Like, I don't really think he did that. It was just easy dog whistle politics on a scapegoat that it can't, can't through the electoral process, vote him out. I, I mean, so, so it, um, you know, obviously like, so that's what to me is so sad about this. I mean, I feel like if I'm on an airplane and I say to someone, I'm an immigration lawyer, I'm probably going to get an earful. Like people have very strong opinions about this. This is one of the reasons why if I want to just sit quiet in an airplane, I tell people I'm an administrative lawyer because that sounds so boring and it's true. But like what what kind of follow up questions would you have to that? Um, but it's it's the it's this really hot button contentious issue. In fact, my mother was an, an ESL teacher and she said the same thing, like even years ago, because she retired 14 years ago. I mean, she said, I couldn't tell people what I did because it was like, you're helping these illegal, you know, it's, it just it, like, I don't know why we as a country have this hatred for the other. And, and especially when so much, so many of us have ourselves been, you know, descendant of immigrants, good friends who are, you know, either immigrants themselves or first generation. I mean, it's so, um, it, it's just like the nativist xenophobia is so troubling. And it's just a reality of our country that, um, that, you know, I suppose there's no changing, there's no getting back to, you know, some other version of what we should be. And we should be America, the melting pot and welcoming you know, we should be living up to the aspirations of the Statue of Liberty, but we're not. Yeah, it it's um, incredibly important, the, the role of politics. I think that was mostly what I was getting at. Um, basically how, like, Governor DeSantis dropped, like, the migrants off at, at, at this vineyard and said, this is your problem now, and I'm not dealing with the, with these people. Um, so I that's, that's especially problematic. And um, well, and, and I, guess... I mean, I know that I also read stories afterwards where um, 
the governor of Texas was kind of annoyed because the governor of Santis or governor DeSantis kind of like out did him. <laughs> you know, it's like, hey, I did that too. And I pulled that move first, but you did it in a, like a more mean and deceptive and, you know, flashy way. And so that to me was even more ironic about the, the way the politics proved, like who can be the nastiest to the group of Venezuelan asylum seekers is the one who wins the most votes. I mean, that was the takeaway that I got from those news stories. Yeah. And obviously, yeah, it's, it's such a, it's such a pervasive issue. Um, and I guess like moving forward, how would you suggest say sanctuary cities or states um, addressing these problems? Is it something that, say the cities themselves should change or is it more of a, a policy issue like um that the policy should change um rather than just kind of letting cities uh delegate it themselves i mean i think cities from are are wise and smart to set forth that you know even if they don't make a pronouncement that they are a sanctuary city they can just decide we're not asking about immigration status. That is not what we do. I mean, I know that when I first was an immigration lawyer back in 2003, this was right after the um, uh, the um, there were the sniper um, uh, uh, like shootings where you like couldn't pump gas because you were worried that somebody would just like shoot out of out of the um, you know while you were like standing there pumping gas. And there was a story about how. Um, what or sort of what ended up happening was the um, the 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 woman who had information about the sniper was undocumented and she didn't come forward because she was afraid that she would have her immigration status looked into. And so right around that same time, there was proposed legislation to deputize local police as immigration agents. And this was the narrative that we kept pushing back with, like, aren't we all happy that we don't have a sniper? Aren't we happy that the criminal justice system did what it needed to do um, without having, you know, or I should say, like, aren't we a little bummed that probably people, some people got killed because that useful, valuable, valuable information didn't get into the hands of the police to solve it because she was afraid of coming forward because of her immigration status. Like, there's a way to fix this. And that is, just don't make the police immigration agents. That's not their job. That's not what they're there to do. And plenty of police departments would say, that is not what we're here to do. And in fact, it gets in the way of us doing our central job, which is investigating crime. So if people are afraid to come forward and tell us what happened, that will get in the way of doing what we need to do. And um, so that's, um, I mean, I, I think that's what, to me, makes a lot more sense for cities to be doing. I mean, cities can't really make federal immigration law. They can't be the ones who decide which categories of people are going to be deported or who should get asylum. Um, but they can just be welcoming to their um, non-citizen communities and they can send a message to their employees that we don't, this is not our job. We're, we're doing other things and we're not trying to become agents of the federal deportation machine. Yeah, that that's all all really good, and um, hopefully, you know these these policies will be implemented in the future, um, such as like low funding and, and all of that. Um, but that that's pretty much all the questions that I had. Um, so thank you. Unless unless you'd like to add anything else, um, thank you for joining me. Sure. Thanks for having me. Have a great afternoon.